This sermon was recorded on September 15th of 2013. It is the 66th sermon in the uh, Book of Acts, our study of the Book of Acts. Um, in it, we're about to cross over into chapter 15, but Pastor Phil is going to give a brief history lesson on heresies, on ecumenical council meetings, um, build a case uh, before getting into chapter 15, because chapter 15 marks a major turning point in the church's history. In verse 1, we actually see the first, according to the book of Acts, we see the first major heresy to arise within the church. And and so Pastor Phil, before expounding on chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, is going to talk about some major heresies and some ecumenical council meetings and things of that nature uh, to build a context for 15. Uh, he'll begin by outlining um, the nine major heresies uh, that the church has had to deal with over its 2,000-year history. And he will begin with number one, which is called docetism. Docetism. Have you ever heard of it? Have you ever heard of docetism? Docetism came out probably in the middle to the late part of the first century. So this was a heresy that was brought about or that began to infiltrate the church during even the penning of scripture, if you will, and the stuff that we have been talking about in Acts, docetism. Docetism was a, an error uh, with several variations concerning like the nature of who Jesus Christ is. Docetism essentially questioned who is Jesus. Generally, it taught that physical matter, like all things physical, was evil. And that Jesus only appeared to have had a body. That he appeared to have had a body. Like what you're seeing is more of an emanation. It's not really him in flesh, but it's an emanation. Why? Because everything that is physical is essentially evil. And so if Jesus took on human flesh, which is a physical presence, then he must be evil. And so what docetists taught was that all physical matter is evil. Therefore, Jesus only appeared to us in a bodily form. That he was not really incarnate uh, in terms of how the Bible describes him. The Apostle John actually addressed and refuted docetism in uh, 1 John 4, 1-3. He dealt head-on with this particular heresy. He said, beloved church, okay, he's writing to the church, do not believe every spirit... Don't believe everything that someone says in terms of being the spiritual thing. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets, here's a warning, many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this time in church history, very early still, you had false prophets, you had false teachers, you had guys coming in and trying to infiltrate and infect the church with error. And he says, don't listen to them all. He says, by this, you know the Spirit of God. By this particular fact, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. If somebody comes and testifies to you and says, hey, you know, all 
a physical matter is, is wicked and evil, therefore Christ couldn't have come in a physical way. He says, anyone who comes and says that to you is a false spirit. They are testifying falsely on behalf of God, is what he says. So he dealt with docetism. Others like Ignatius and Irenaeus and Hippolytus, these were apologists that came a little later on. They all addressed and refuted docetism. Okay, so we have a sense of what docetism is. And I believe that docetism paved the way for the great, one of the largest heresies the church has had to deal with. And that would be number two, and that's Gnosticism. How many of you have heard of Gnosticism? Have you ever heard of the Gnostic Gospels and Gnosticism? Gnosticism came around in about the late first century. I mean, some say that it predates all of that, but really, late first century and early second centuries is when it began to appear. And I believe it's a form of docetism. There are many variations of Gnosticism. In fact, there's too many to list. There's all sorts. There's like denominations inside of Gnosticism, different, different variations and, and threads of it. But at its core, Gnosticism is the belief that, like docetism, physical matter is evil. And then it also teaches that deliverance from physical material or from material form was attainable only through special knowledge, which is called in Greek gnosis. Gnosticism is named after gnosis, knowledge. And so what Gnostics taught was physical matter is evil and wicked. Christ did not actually come in physical form. And guess what? Us Gnostics, we have the gnosis on how you can be delivered from physical matter into a fully spiritual sort of, uh, you know, format, if you will, and be saved and delivered. This is what they taught. Gnostics taught that God, <laughs> this is crazy, it's like Star Trek, listen. Gnostics taught, like green guys coming in, right? Gnostics taught that God created Lesser divinities, or what we call emanations. One of these lesser emanations actually desired to know what God knows and sinned against God and became an evil emanation or lesser divinity. The evil emanation then did what? Created the physical universe. Since this emanation sinned against the father of all emanations and then went and created the universe since he's sinful everything that exists physically is therefore sinful wicked and wrong this is the primary belief of Gnosticism the Gnostic message was fairly simple like if you had people out there evangelizing on behalf of Gnosticism they would say things like, if you want to, you know, if you want to be truly saved, if you want to truly know God, you must join us. We have the gnosis, the special knowledge that it will take to deliver you from your physical form. You must become a part of our clique, our clan, our cult. And they would never refer to themselves as a clan. And I believe that the Apostle John also responded to the Gnostic heresy in 1 John there too. When he addressed docetism, he may have been addressing obviously what came later, which was Gnosticism. I think probably one of the primary apologists against this heresy was Irenaeus. Um, early church apologist. What you had basically was you had sort of the apostolic era 
era with the apostles. And once they died off, you had what's called the apologistic era. You had these other guys that kind of rose up and began to, because once the apostles died, man, the heresies and the false teachers really began to storm the church. And so you had this season, many centuries of apologists that stepped up and rose up and God raised them up. And Irenaeus was probably the premier apologist that came through the church that stood against Gnosticism. He actually wrote a detailed attack on Gnosticism called Against Heresies in 180 AD. A phenomenal read. And, and guess which variation of Christianity today borrows from Gnosticism? Christian science. We have the secret knowledge and we have scientific formulas that help to deliver us from this physical. That's exactly what they teach. And so there are Christians, if you will, see how I put them in quotes, not sure, that claim this Gnostic belief. And it comes through what we call Christian science. And there's a Christian science church right down the street. So Gnosticism was massive. And then we have, number three, we have Montanism. Montanism came about in the late 2nd century. Montanism is named after its founder, Montanus, or Mountainus. Montanus, Montanus began his career in the church, if you will, rather innocently enough, you know, preaching a return to penance and fervor and, and you know, and, and faith in Christ. I mean, it, you know, it's like a lot of these guys that come up with this craziness start well, and for whatever reason, they, they don't end well. And so this guy kind of had a good start. However, from the beginning of his start in ministry, his movement also emphasized the continuance of miraculous gifts such as speaking in tongues and prophecy. Now you have to understand the widely held belief during this time was those things ceased with the apostles. Okay? Based on church history with the death of John the apostle which came, he was the last one to live... The belief, the common belief and the widely held belief during the church during those centuries afterwards was that these gifts have ended with them. They were signs and wonders given to them in particular. And so, but this particular guy, Montanus, he continued in these things. He continued to do them. He continued to speak in tongues and continued to prophesy. And, and he even uh, claimed to receive special prophetic visions and extra biblical instruction from God on top of what God had already revealed. Don't think because the you know, New Testament hadn't been canonized by this point that these people did not have these New Testament letters by the time Montanus came around. They were in circulation. They weren't as wide as they're in circulation today by no means, but these things were out there. We had the Bible, okay? And what this guy was saying is, I'm getting stuff that's on top of that. And he even made the boast, I'm getting stuff that is better and greater and broader than what God has apparently revealed in these 66 books. These were the claims that he made. He even declared at one point, and he gave this sort of prophetic, like, uh, he claimed to give this, like, prophetic, like, forecast that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to return on a particular date to his hometown of Phrygia. You might say that this guy was the Harold Camping of his day. You've heard of Harold Camping? He's coming on October 1st, or 31st. Darn it, he didn't come on Halloween. He's coming on December 22nd. The guy just keeps rotating his dates. Every time the Lord doesn't come back, he just adds a new date. It's a pretty easy system to function to. 
And for some reason, people don't go, what a Nimrod. He didn't get the first one, right? They keep going, oh, well, we can understand why he didn't come the first time. You're right. He's coming on December 27th, and he didn't come on that one. So they keep following this goofball. Well, that was kind of what was playing out during this particular time, late in the second century, middle of it there. He was sort of the herald camping of his day. Now, in, and, and here's what's amazing, this, this theology of his of speaking in tongues and gifts and these kinds of things that he tried to continue on, honestly, really died out in the church after him. Oh, we have a rich history of these things. No, you don't. Absolutely no, you do not. The church has widely held that those things ceased almost for nearly 2,000 years, not just in the first part. And so in 1906, there was a resurgence of Montanism in Los Angeles on Azusa Street, the birthplace of modern Pentecostalism. I don't mean to be offensive if you have those roots. I have no doubt that there are true believers in that movement, no doubt. But Pentecostalism comes through Montanism. It's amazing how many things we have out there. The Christian science comes through the one before. Amazing how many things come from some earlier heresy, some earlier error, something that was addressed way earlier. Now, the ancient apologist Tertullian, have you heard of him? He was the great defender against Montanism. He was the guy back in the early days who claimed sola scriptura, scripture alone, don't you dare Add to the scripture. Don't you dare say that what you've been given, Montanus, has the same level of, as authority or, or sufficiency or power or inerrancy as the living word of God. He was the one that, that beat the drum against this and went toe-to-toe with this guy, UFC style. However, the allure and appeal of receiving additional revelation from God was very powerful and eventually led him into Montanism. He became a Montanist. And in the heart of every human being, even though he's been regenerated and saved, there's still a desire for more, isn't there? More, more, more. And a desire for experience. More experience. I want more of God. I want more. I know the Bible's cool. There's more to it than that. There's more. There's our default mode. And this amazing, one of the most brilliant men the church has ever produced. Tertullian's incredible. There isn't a person here that could stand and contest him. He would blow my, if I had a toupee, it'd fly off. I mean, the guy was just brilliant, and yet he succumbed to it. He didn't guard his own heart. And so that's Montanism. Number four, we have Sibelianism, early third century. Sibelianism is named after Sibelius, who taught that Jesus Christ and, and God the Father were not distinct persons, but two aspects or offices of one person. According to Sibelius, the three persons of the Trinity um, exist only in God's relation to man, but not in object reality. At its core, Sibelianism rejects the doctrine of Trinity. Another name for Sibelianism is modalism. Have you ever heard of modalism? I, not everyone in here is going to say yes, I've heard of that, but that is an ongoing variation of Sibelianism, and it's an ongoing heresy in the church today. And you might be surprised to hear this, but men like T.D. Jakes and women like Joyce Meyer and the singing group Phillips, Craig, and Dean are all modalists. They all reject the doctrine of Trinity. 
There is only one God, and he sent forth visions of himself in the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. Emanations, if you will. That's what they believe. And I think the reason, I always get blown away by how many people I know who quote T.D. Jakes and place themselves under his teaching. Are they doing this because they don't understand his true doctrinal position? Do you not realize, I think he doesn't realize it, but to reject the Trinity is to reject Christ as God, which is to reject salvation. As nice as a guy could be, as motivating as a guy could be, as kind as he might be, as passionate as he might be, if that guy was standing next to me, he'd blow my doors off on passion and preaching. The guy is an amazing speaker. The guy is an amazing communicator. But guess what? He doesn't understand a core doctrine of Christianity, and that's that Christ is God. Every bit God as the Father is. That, you know, these aren't variations of God, that they are all God equally. Joyce Meyer, same thing. Singing band, Phillips, Craig, and Dean. I'll never forget when that band came and sang at my old church, and I was like, do we not screen people, or do we not care? It matters! You know, it matters. It matters what you subject yourself to. Because that falsity and those heresies are laden through a ministry, the ministry they lead, and through their messages, and through their preaching. Scary stuff. Now, who... And, and here's another thing. Again, not to be, you know, mean or harsh at all, but guess which form of Christianity today is based primarily on modalism? Mormonism. Mormonism rejects the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay, and it is based on Sibelianism or modalism. Number five, Arianism. Arianism. Don't think of Arian brotherhood in prisons. Not even the same thing. Way different, right? Oh, Aryan Brotherhood. No, 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 no. No, those guys were far worse, I would imagine. Fourth century, Arianism. This is a big one. Arianism developed around 320 or so in Alexandria, Egypt, concerning, it you know, basically concerns the person of Jesus Christ, and it's named after Arius of Alexander. Arianism is named after Alexander or Arius of Alexander. Arius taught that only God the Father was eternal and too pure and too infinite and, and, and to appear on earth at all. Arianism puts an amazingly high value. All of its chips are put on the transcendence of God. Like God is so far beyond all things, there's no way he could have anything to do with this planet. He's not imminent, Christ with us, Right? So God produced, Arian teaching, God produced Christ the Son out of nothing as the first and greatest creation. The Son is then the one who created the universe. Arians even asserted that Christ the Son created the Holy Spirit. Though Christ was a creation... Because of his great position and authority, he was to be worshipped and even looked upon as a form of God. Arians rejected, or even today, they reject the deity of Jesus Christ. They reject the deity of the Holy Spirit. They reject the doctrine of Trinity. And guess who borrows from Arianism today? Jehovah's Witnessism. They reject the same things. They're basically, their religion is based off of Arianism to the T. It's quite startling. They reject the same things. The Bishop of Alexandria, one of my favorite uh, people of all time in the church, Athanasius, 
uh, was the chief apologist against Arianism. He was brilliant. He was tenacious. He was fearless. He did not succumb later on and give in to these heresies. He held the line until the very end. His, and he was just, I mean, rabid against this false heresy that was trying to come into the church and had infiltrated the church. He was against it, against it, against it, preached against it day and night, spent the 40 years in ministry that he had, nearly all 40 of them, dealing with this particular error. His peers actually gave him the Latin nickname Contramundum, which means against the world. He was seemingly against the world and the worldliness that was trying to infiltrate the church in the form of Arianism. Deadly, deadly, lethal heresy. And then six, we have Pelagianism. Pelagianism, anyone heard of that one? This is a very well-known one today. There's variations of it. We'll get to them. Fifth century, Pelagianism. Pelagianism is named after its founder, Pelagius. Pelagius denied that we inherit original sin from Adam and claimed that we become sinful only through the bad example of the sinful community into which we are born. Conversely, he denied that we inherit righteousness as a result of Christ's death on the cross. He actually denied that we inherit that righteousness of Christ uh, through his death on the cross and said that we become personally righteous by instruction and imitation in the Christian community following the example of Christ. Basically what he said is we're not all sinners, but we can undo the sin that we've learned that's been attached to us through our culture. We can undo it by following Jesus' example and doing what he did. And that's how we become righteous. Pelagius stated that a man, that man is born morally neutral, okay, he's like Switzerland, you know, he doesn't take either side, he's not for or against, you know, he's born morally neutral and can achieve heaven under his own powers. According to him, God's grace is not uh, truly necessary, but merely makes easier and otherwise difficult task. Oh, the grace of God doesn't rescue us by any means, but it helps us to achieve this righteousness that we're on a trajectory to earn. The chief apologist, my favorite, the chief apologist against Pelagianism was Augustine. Augustine of Hippo. Augustine has also become one of the greatest thinkers and theologians of the Christian church the church has ever produced. Have you ever read anything from Augustine? You should read City of God from him. You should read his Confessions. Absolutely amazing man of God and so much of the doctrine, not I would say the doctrine, but the theology that we believe today or that we see as being biblical has come through him so early. I mean, it's pretty amazing. But this was the guy that really uh, harpooned this sort of thinking and went after it. Seven, semi-Pelagianism. Okay, well, you know what? Augustine has pretty much single-handedly brought, you know, Pelagianism to an end. There was obviously a council meeting that took place where this happened. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But after Augustine refused and refuted and annihilated the teachings of Pelagius, some tried to create or generate a modified version of his system. Uh, Semi-Pelagianism admits that men are sinners. Whoa, what a big step in the right direction here, right? Semi-Pelagianism says, man, men, men are sinners. Pelagius was wrong here because he said that none of us are sinners and we don't inherit, inherit sin from Adam. But semi-Pelagianism says we do. So that's a step in the right direction. But, <laughs> but it teaches that salvation is still synergistic where God does his part by helping man and man does his part by believing. 
You know, salvation, according to the Bible, is what we call monergistic. It's all of God. Man doesn't do anything in it except he's done his part perfectly well, and that's sin like crazy. God does his part and gives grace and gives the gift of faith and rescues blind ding-dongs like me who walk the earth going, oh, what's next? He does it all. It's all in him. And, and so what semi-Pelagianism says, God does a part, but man does his part as well. And semi-Pelagianism, okay, seems like a less volatile view. And I'll tell you this, too. We're going to get into another one here, but this is a widely held view today by the majority of Christians in the form of something else we're going to get to. But you must know this. Semi-Pelagianism was denounced at a high council meeting. I'll talk about it. I think I'm going to get to it. But it was denounced by Augustine and a high council meeting later on. Semi-Pelagianism was as well. It was also refuted and deemed heresy in 529 at the Second Council of Orange. I didn't do much research on that council, but there was a synod that came together. There was an ecumenical council meeting, whole church meeting that came together and said, Pelagianism is horrible and it's not scriptural. And guess what? Neither is semi-Pelagianism, this variation of it. So both things were annihilated but are still around. Uh, number eight. I hope you're not getting bored. Are you Okay. It's interesting stuff, right? It helps to build a foundation for where the church has been. Number eight, and I would think this is probably one of the most widely ones we've ever seen, especially during a particular time. And I'm calling it, I don't think it has an actual name, but I'm calling it traditionalism. Traditionalism was massive, monstrous, huge in the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. Uh, and if we've skipped from the 5th all the way up to that, that's not to say that there weren't heresies that arose in between. There were plenty. But traditionalism, 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. One of the darkest periods in the history of the church was the Renaissance period. Remember the Renaissance period, Sistine Chapel being painted, just amazing things going on in terms of art, like, wow, the world really changed in terms of visual art, pretty awesome. But the Spanish Inquisition also happened. Um, Constantinople was decimated and destroyed by the Ottomans, which was a Christian stronghold. Massive, terrible, terrible things happened during this period of time. And so it was a, and in terms of the church, it was a horrific time, I think, for the church as well. Uh, the church during the Renaissance period, uh, which basically lasted from 1300 to about 1500, you know, slightly less or more there. Uh, during the Renaissance period, during that 13 to 1500, 200 year period, the church reached a sort of pinnacle in terms of its waywardness. Um, it had become enamored with its traditions uh, to the point of losing its way, I think, really completely. That's not to say that all people in the church lost their way, but oh my gosh, did it, it just did in so many ways. Traditionalism actually became the great heresy of the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. Here, let me give you some traditional beliefs the church held. These things are grounded in tradition, and this is what the church believed, and you'll see the progression of how it went astray. Tradition held, and this is what the church clung to, Tradition held that ultimate authority was held by the Pope, not Scripture. Okay? Now we've just taken on a Montanistic view, if you will. Okay, ultimate authority is not in the Holy Scripture, God's Word, which they had in abundance during this time. Not as abundant today, but they had it way more so than they did back in the first, second, third. The Pope, it, it, the buck stops with him. It's all about the Pope. The Pope is the highest authority. Tradition held that the Pope was the only authorized interpreter of Scripture. Only the Pope can interpret. 
you guys that teach in these churches throughout these areas, you can't interpret. You can do what we tell you to do. But ultimate authority, ultimate interpretation is the Pope. What the Pope says about Scripture is and carries the same level as authority as Scripture itself. He is the only authorized interpreter of Scripture. Tradition held that Scripture could be read and taught only by authorized persons, only interpreted by Pope, but it could only be really taught and read out loud publicly in places by authorized people. What I'm telling you is that people did not have access to the Word of God. They did not have Bibles in their languages. They were not allowed to. It wasn't because, oh, the printing press or these things. No, it was because the church, the Pope said, nobody else can have it. Only us. We're the ones that have it. Tradition held that purgatory, which was developed only a hundred years before Renaissance, if that, this idea of purgatory does not go back to, to, to the first century, doesn't go back to the teachings of Jesus, it doesn't go back to the Old Testament, it's new. And it came about probably in 1200 or so. And, and so the church held that purgatory is necessary for those who die in partial purity. Just study it yourself. I could do 50 sermons on what that means. Partial purity. They're not fully purified by what Christ has done. They're half clean. It's like water, you know, showering half your body. Zest fully clean, nastiness from a week. You know, it just, just makes no sense to me. But purgatory, every person who's only been partially clean must go through purgatory. Tradition held that true salvation was the result of a combination of grace and good works. This is the belief the church held then. It had completely forsaken the idea of grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is what Christ did, and mind you, all the imagery back then, still on the cross hanging there making atonement, but it isn't enough because you still got to earn your part. You still got to do your part. These are the traditions the church held. Uh, tradition held that the selling of indulgences was right and good and pleasing to God Almighty. Selling indulgences. Corruption was probably had reached a pinnacle during this time in church history, during the Renaissance period. It was so widespread. In fact, Pope Julius II had Peter's Basilica torn down. just wasn't looking good enough. We've got to build a new building. And so he you know, tore down this incredibly ancient, awesome, amazing building and said, we've got to build a new version of it. And in order to raise funds, the necessary funds, he sent out salesmen like John Tetzel. You know, traveling, you know, he wasn't selling Kirby's. You know, he was out selling indulgences to try to raise money to build, to take, you know, take on this endeavor. He sold indulgences. His most famous indulgent was the indulgence that he sold and marketed was the reduced purgatory indulgence. You know, see, purgatory says that we've got to go and we've got this further purging before we can enter the kingdom of God. That's the idea. You die in partial purity. You've got to go in through this period and be purged and whatever. And so, you know, every person was assigned a certain amount of time in purgatory according to Catholic thought. They believe it today. And so what this guy did was we went out and said, well, if you buy this paper with the Pope's edict on it, with this, you know, this edict from the Pope with this little special little stamp on it, uh, if you pay $29.95 for it and three easy payments of $11.21, you know, you'll have your grandma's time in purgatory reduced. That math didn't add up, but they wanted, they wanted a tip. <laughs> I, I stink at math. But he would go around and he would scare literally the hell out of people by having a stage show and threatening people with purgatory and hell. And then he would say, but you don't have to go through this if you buy this indulgence, which helps to beat, consequently, St. Peter's Basilica. These are the things that Tetzel did. These are the things that the papacy 
did. Tetzel's most famous line is, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah. Poor and destitute people were duped into spending their last coins on these indulgences. Tetzel even fooled people into thinking that they could buy their way into heaven through these indulgences. He actually sold salvation indulgences. And guess what the church did? They raised millions of dollars this way off of poor people who wanted to help their relatives who were ignorant because they weren't allowed to have the word. And they just scammed them and ripped them off. And then, praise God, came along the greatest thorn the Roman Catholic Church, the papacies ever saw in its life, and that's Martin Luther. And he actually was a Roman Catholic. <laughs> he came from the inside. In 1517, Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. His thesis was a radical call to repentance. I've read it. It's phenomenal. It's a short read. It's just a radical call to repentance to the church and to the papacy and to the pope. In it, he condemned indulgences. He, he condemned the pope's absolute power and authority over scripture. And, and he condemned a number of other traditions, pretty much just blasted them. And he didn't do this to try to, you know, jack anyone up or, you know, to create massive division. He wrote the 95 Thesis in an effort to have a debate and to discuss these things. Of course, that's not how his contemporaries or the other leaders in the church responded now, Luther really just picked up where the earliest reformers left off, okay? Don't think that, oh, because of Luther, we have the Protestant Reformation. There were men who died and burned at the stake long before him who were saying the same things. Luther just picked up where these other earliest reformers left off. He took up the mantle of men like Wycliffe. He took the, the mantle of men like Huss. Guys like that, um, Jerome of Prague... Waldo, these were early reformers. They came around before, and not where's Waldo. I know you're thinking that. I see him! <laughs> He's on fire! <laughs> right? <laughs> Terrible time for a joke like that, but it's what happened. Other reformed voices emerged, though. This is what's so beautiful about the Protestant Reformation, man. What those early guys started and started saying, no, church, it's wrong. No, Pope, it's wrong. Martin Luther started saying that, too. And then all sorts of other emergent, you know, voices emerged like Zwingli and Cranmer and Tyndale and Melanchthon and Calvin and Knox and Beza. All these men said, no, church, you harlot, come back to the scripture. That is your Protestant Reformation, Okay? That's what happened. It was never, we got to go start our own thing. It was, fix it, Pope. And guess what? They would not relent. And so they had to split from the church. And incredibly, interestingly as well, the Catholic Church today identifies Protestantism as the greatest heresy the church has ever encountered. <laughs> It's rather absurd. The very movement that was meant to reform the church by bringing it back to scripture was deemed heretical by the church. That's what happened. And so the rift between Catholics and Protestants was formed. This rift has continued over the last 500 years and will not be removed until the Catholic church repents. Until the Catholic church realizes what it's done and returns to the inerrancy, to the sufficiency to the fullness 
of Scripture. And I suppose the same thing could be said about many Protestant churches today that have turned away from the Scripture, right? We must not think for a moment that we Protestants have it all together. We are running from the Scripture at breakneck speed, making the same errors, exalting tradition, exalting evangelism, seeker-sensitive friendliness, all this crap. We are making the same errors. The truth is that biblical ignorance, error, mistake, heresy is rampant on both sides. And the Catholic movement, the Protestant church today, and the church as a whole is in need of another reformation. Nine. Arminianism. Ooh, don't you talk about that, Phil. Oh. I'm only reciting history to you. I'm not making these things up. Arminianism, late 16th and early 17th centuries is when this one came about. It is a new form of semi-Pelagianism called Arminianism. It emerged in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Arminianism is based on the teachings of Jacobus, some call him Jacob, Arminius, and the Remonstrants, a group that followed his teachings, who actually developed the five points of Arminianism. The five points of Arminianism, this is a new belief that they generated off of an old heresy, and this is what they produced and began to say this is the true church, this is how truly God saves people, and this is their mantra. These are the five points of Arminianism. This is what they developed. Uh, number one would be free will. Man has an unfettered free will. His free will is not chained. It is not under the bondage of sin. It is unfettered. It is perfect, just as it was before the fall, he has an unfettered free will and can use it to save himself by believing in Jesus Christ. That's their primary first point. The second would be conditional election. What Arminians or Ar Arminianism means and teaches, and this is the ancient form and even today. Conditional election, God looked out over time and chose to elect to salvation the people who chose to believe in his son. It's like God looked out over time and saw all these people responding to the grace of God, responding to Jesus Christ, putting their faith and trust in him. And what he said was, look, Jesus, look at all these people that are believing in you. Let's elect them to salvation. That's what they teach. They teach resistible grace. Number three, the third point of Arminianism. God's saving grace is resistible and can be rejected. A person can just say, heck no, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want anything to do with that. Number four, universal atonement. Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved. But God, or yeah, Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure salvation for anyone in particular. It's like God put his son on the cross and said, I hope somebody believes. Or actually, I know who's going to believe. I, I watched them do it. So it wasn't like in particular for any one person. It was just kind of a universal sort of thing. And that's what they teach. What was taught then in the, those centuries. So you have that uh, universal atonement. And then you have fall from grace. This is probably, uh, uh, to me, I think one of the most disturbing ones. Although I, 
wrestle with some of the others, but this is the one that really gets me. This fall from grace, basically those who attain salvation through exercising their own will can also give it up and forfeit it. See, I can use, Arminianism teaches, I can use my will that's unfettered to believe and then later, you know, I've believed and I've spent the last 30 years of my life believing and then I can also use my will to say, forget that crap, that's dumb. I don't even want to believe that anymore and I can lose my salvation. See, Arminianism is a, um, it's a, basically it is a form of how God saves and it's based on its own logic. Man saves himself and then when you get to the end of the chain, man can unsave himself. That's what it teaches. In response, and are there variations of it today? Absolutely. Um, but that's the primary stuff. Now, in response to the new semi-Pelagian outbreak known as Arminianism, a world council or synod was formed to evaluate its five articles. This is history. At this point, you had these Protestant churches that had broken away from the Catholic Church, and there was a unified common doctrinal belief in these Protestant churches at this point. This is a splitting point, what happened here in the Protestant movement, and here's where the denominations really exploded. But anyways, in response to this new semi-Pelagian outbreak known as Arminianism, a World Council Synod was formed to evaluate its five articles. The council became known as the Synod of Dort. There were 84 members and 18 secular commissions, commissioners, somewhere around there. I always thought that's weird. Why do you have secular people in there? They're unbiased. They just evaluate the information that's given. They don't say, well, I think it should be this way. Well, the church guys do that. And so they had this commission built with, you know, 84 members of different churches all around the world. And they had these secular commissioners. The Synod wrote what has come to be known as the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort is a comprehensive biblical polemic against the five points of Arminianism. In the end, at the end of the Synod, it was an ecumenical council, a huge one. People came from all over, churches in England, everywhere came to this thing to listen to this thing and to, to see if this Arminianism was a bad thing. At the end of the council, at the end of the sessions, many sessions, many things written, canons of Dort in response, at the end, Arminianism, as hard as this is to swallow because it's so pervasive today, was condemned as heresy. Uh, it's not right. They must have got something wrong. It was condemned as heresy, and the remonstrants were dismissed as heretics. This happened. Now, here's what's interesting. Later, the five basic tenets of the Canons of Dort were abbreviated and put it, you know, they were kind of put into a simple acrostic called Tulip. You've heard of this. Oh, here he goes. He's going to talk about Calvinism. Hold on a second. Tulip became known as the five points of Calvinism, and I have no idea why. Because Calvin had been dead for 60 years before the synod took place. And when they came and wrote the canons of Dort, when they did their research on Arminianism and wrote these things, they used the darn Bible. They didn't use, you know, Calvin's, let's quote him verbatim. And so how this thing became known as Calvinism is a mystery to me. Calvin taught some wonderful things and wrote some wonderful things. I would say that every Christian should own a copy of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's one of the most amazing, systematized doctrinal books the church has ever seen or produced. And so how somehow the tie is made, I, I don't know, maybe I'm missing something. But they use the Bible to put together their argument against Arminianism, not Calvin. Now, 
but later it was summarized and called Calvinism. So anyway, so people think what happens is people think that, well, Calvinism's not Bible, it's Calvin's thoughts. And if you actually look at the history of the way this thing played out, these guys were studying the word. And so it makes a great case for the tulip being biblical and not so much as Calvin. Now, tulip stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints. Each letter of, of, of the tulip is a direct response to each of the five articles of Arminianism. This is just history, friends. Five points of Calvinism, if you will, canons of Dort, condensed, tulip, first one being total depravity. I like to call it total inability. I don't like that word, total depravity. It makes it sound like people can never do anything good, and all I ever do is commit murders and all these things, and that's not true. I can do good things, although none of those good things are pleasing to God whatsoever, apart from faith. Total inability, total depravity, all men. What does it say? All men are sinners, okay? Sin affects the whole man, all right? What the Bible teaches so clearly, sin affects the whole man. In other words, somehow his will didn't escape. Sin Sin affects the whole man. It affects his heart. It affects his flesh. It affects his mind. It affects his will. It affects his spirit. In fact, taking it all the way out, the logical conclusion is that man is spiritually dead before God. In other words, he cannot. It cannot, under any circumstances, exercise faith on his own. He doesn't have it. He doesn't possess it. His will is corrupt. Everything about him is corrupt. Everything about him is corrupt. There's your first response. Second, unconditional election. Arminians say conditional. God looked out and picked those who picked him. Unconditional election. This is the response. God sovereignly chose in eternity past a people for himself. Ephesians 1, that's unbelievable. He elected them to salvation according to the counsel of his will, not according to the choice that man would make later on. Not according to the choice that man would make later on. How can man who is totally depraved and in sin and his will is corrupt and he's jacked and he's lost, how can he pick God later on? And what's this idea of God looking out over time? God doesn't exist in time and God doesn't learn. He's all-knowing, so he knows, he, he knows it all. He doesn't have to look out and say, well, I, I learned that he believed. God already knows all things. Unconditional election. Limited atonement. Or I like to call it particular, particular redemption. Christ came to die for a people. He came to die for those whom the Father had given him. He came to die for his bride, the church. Redemption is particular because Christ came to die for a particular people. Those whom the Father had sovereignly predestined and elected. Those who he foreknew. Those who he foreknew, predestined, and elected to salvation. Salvation, as hard as this is to swallow, and I still wrestle with it. According to this theology and according to what I've seen in Scripture, salvation is for the elect of God only. Not everyone believes. We see that so clearly in our world. So the atonement that Christ made on the cross is not for everyone because not everyone gets saved. It was for a particular people. And this is what this counter to Arminianism that says he just put him up there and hopefully somebody will believe. Oh, look, we got some. Irresistible grace. When God sends the Holy Spirit to make his saving grace effectual in the heart of his elect, they do not resist it because they have been regenerated and made alive to they have been made alive to and placed in God who loves them, the God who loves them. In other words, um, to the elect, grace becomes like honey to the bee. Grace is sweet to his lips. Grace nourishes him. Grace keeps him alive. Grace regenerates, brings him to life. 
And so when God comes upon a person in his sovereign grace, you don't go, I don't want that. You go, I finally found what I've been looking for. Oh, I feel complete. I have peace. I know God. That was my exact experience at Big Valley Grace. I didn't sit there and walk forward and go down the altar. People get saved that way. Something happened. Because I was resisting and resisting and resisting and looking at the clock going, Rachel, why are you bringing me to this dreadful place? Look at these idiots raising their hands. I hate this. This is stupid. When's he going to stop? All of a sudden, hallelujah. That's what happened to me. And I prayed the prayer of salvation with my sister-in-law over there. God bless her heart. Wanted to see me get saved. I was destroying my marriage. Oh, God, save me. Uh, Turn around. Another beer, you know. And then something happened. A lightning bolt. The hound of heaven got me, as C.S. Lewis said. Amazing. Grace wasn't something that when it came upon me, I said, I don't want this. I said, I've always wanted this. I just didn't know it. Irresistible grace. Number five, perseverance of the saints. All who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and given faith by the Spirit are eternally saved. They are kept in faith by the power of Almighty God and thus persevere to the end. In other words, God brings to completion the saving work that he began. No matter what. No matter what. Now, those are the differences between... um, I don't want to say Calvinism because it really didn't belong to him initially, even though he helped to articulate these things. But when Arminianism rose up during those centuries, this was the response of the church, and this is what they used, these things, to refute this new ideology. Now, there were, of course, more heresies and attacks on the church than these, not just the nine that I mentioned to you. There were more things than this, more attacks. There were also several ecumenical meetings where leaders came together to discuss doctrine and denounce heresy. I would say the most uh, famous would be the first seven ecumenical councils. And all ecumenical means is all church. It just means the whole church. It doesn't mean, well, that little denomination over there did their own little thing. It means the whole church came together and discussed these things and dealt with these things. I'd like to talk about a few of them before we wrap up. Most, firm, most famous would be the first seven. You have the, number one, the first council of Nicaea in 325. What happened during that council meeting? They condemned Arianism and established the Nicene Creed. You've heard of it, right? The Nicene Creed? That was where Arminianism, or uh, not Arminianism, but Arianism, my bad. Arianism was, was brought to its knees and had its head lopped off. Number two, the first council of Constantinople, 381, reaffirmed the Nicene Creed and defended the deity of the Holy Spirit against the Macedonian heresy. Um, basically, modalism and these things kind of combined and formed this Macedonian heresy, and the church came together and said, nope. The council of Ephesus, number three, 431, defended the dual nature of Christ, the God-man, against the Nestorians, or Nestorians and condemned Pelagianism. There is your... August, you know, Augustine-led sort of um, attack against Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, if you will. You have number four, the Council of Chalcedon, 451, that reaffirmed the Nicene Creed and defended the humanity of Christ again. Some of these ecumenical meetings were repetitive. You know, it was like every 40 or 50 years they had to do it again because people just couldn't get it through their thick heads that this is the way it should be. 
You got the Second Council of Constantinople in 553, similar to the councils at Ephesus and Chalcedon. You had the Third Council, number six, the Third Council of Constantinople in 680, similar to the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon. Again, always defending really the deity of Jesus Christ, which is probably the thing that's been most attacked in the church. And then you had the Second Council of Nicaea in 787. This one's kind of bizarre. In 753, the Synod of Hyeria. This isn't one that I mentioned because it isn't recognized as one of the majors. But in 753, the Synod of Hyeria, I suppose it's pronounced, declared that images of Jesus misrepresented him and images of Mary and the saints were idols. Okay, so what happened was all, these, all this imagery and all this stuff was produced and people were, you know, the saints and all this stuff. And a council came together and said, man, this stuff is leading people astray. You're putting Mary up there and you got a photo, you know, you've painted this thing of her and Jesus is this big and Mary's this big and this is bad. This is just idolatry. So this council came together and said, no more. But at the second council of Nicaea in 787, they, re- they reversed that decision and restored the veneration of icons and images. That's what happened in that seventh ecumenical council. They came and bypassed and said, forget about it. The images are fine. Think about that today. You go into some of the more funded Catholic churches and you have rows of sculpture of saints and you have, you know, Jesus, little baby and Mary, oh, and all her glory. And, you know, and what happened was the early church said, oh, this is bad stuff. It's leading people astray. And at this council meeting, they came together and said, no, it's good. It's good. It's good for our services. It's good for worship. And so those are your ecumenical councils. Obviously, later you have the, you know, you have the, uh, the Synod of Dort that happened that I mentioned already. That was a huge one, and that's where they condemned Arminianism. As we move forward into our text, we will discover, um, I think, two very important things that have everything to do with the history lesson I just gave you. The first thing we will see, and we're going to have to pause it after this, after I make this point, just to wet your palate a little bit. The first thing we will see is the first major heresy against the church. That's what we'll see in 15.1. Okay, just think about it for a moment. We have been studying the book of Acts for almost two years. Name a heresy you've seen in there. What you've seen is Ananias and Sapphira do something dumb and get struck down. I don't know if I'd call that a heresy, maybe. What you've seen is Simon Magnus, the magician, try to take glory onto himself and try to get this Holy Spirit power so he could do the same things the apostles. We've seen that. Those are two things that would cause us to go, ooh, these aren't good. But think now, have you seen anything beyond that in the first 14 chapters? We have seen endless attacks come from the outside, haven't we? The Jews constantly attacking and and, uh, pestering and trying to stop the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. In fact, Paul himself was one of those first people in the form of Saul to attack the church. We have seen, what I'm telling you is we have seen a ton of attack come from the outside consistently since the beginning, since Acts 2. We have seen it over and over. The Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the council meetings where they had and they brought Peter before them and tried to condemn him to death in these things, right? We've seen this. We've seen the stoning of Peter. We've seen these. We've seen things, but for the most part, all of these attacks have been made from the outside with the exception of Ananias and Sapphira and Simon the Magician. But guess what we've reached in our text? A massive turning point 
things will never be the same. Have you read the epistles of Paul? Do you have any idea what he's dealing with in those epistles? He is writing against heresy, heresy, heresy. These Judaizers, these ones who say you must be circumcised to be saved. That's what we're going to see in our text. This is that critical turning point in the history of the church where errors, yeah, they're still coming from the outside, but guess what now? Heresy comes from the inside. It's incredible stuff that we're going to be studying. And it's incredible to see how the church comes together and really has its first ecumenical meeting. All in 15, we're going to see the first heresy and we're going to see how the church responded to it. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty awesome. I've given you a history of what's happened. Don't be offended by what's been said. This is church history. These things don't necessarily reflect all of my perfect points of view or any of that. You know, I don't want anyone in here who has been taught a particular thing and maybe has some Arminian characteristics or things like that. I I had those beliefs right. I don't want you to be offended by what's been said. This is church history. These things happened. I didn't make this stuff up. And at the end of the day, we need to be humble. And this is what I've had to do for years now. We have to humble ourselves and we have to say, and what I cling, is what I'm clinging to out of sorts with the will and word of God? Instead of saying, well, that's what I've always believed and that's what I've always been taught and that's what I've always heard and that's how I interpret scripture, what we should do is say, wait a minute, we have a church history where some of these things that I kind of cling to were deemed as not right. And so what you're to do as a Berean is study the word and what you're to do is get some godly counsel and what you're to do is pray and humble yourself and say, do I need to line myself up better with God's word? Am I not lined up? That's what you need to do. Okay, so don't, 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 don't be offended by this sermon. Don't, 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 don't you know, call it quits. The word of God challenges our traditions like you wouldn't believe, doesn't it? Traditionalism was the great heresy and error of the 16th, 15th, 16th, 17th, even today in the Catholic Church especially. It's still all about tradition. Traditions kill people. Traditions can be the broad road to destruction. Believing what you've been taught over and over and over, if it doesn't line up with Scripture, wow. And so evaluate, study. That's what we're to do, right? We're believers. That's what we do. We hear something and we compare and we look and we study. And if we come to the same conclusion, we come to the same conclusion. But may it not be so that if it ever be a tradition or anything else or a false interpretation, whatever it is, that would ever lead us astray. And we need to be about the word, love the word, know that it's our ultimate authority and submit ourselves to it. I love love what, I think it was Irenaeus that said it. I believe it was him that said it. Whenever you're confused about, you know, you hear stuff and you hear chatter and you hear these things and you've been taught these things and you've listened to these things, he would say, this is so long ago, second century, he would tell people that would come to him and say, well, so-and-so has been saying this and -and so-and-so has been saying that. This is obviously my translation. You know what he would say? Trust your bishop. Bishops back then weren't these guys that led, you know, the Bishop T.D. Jakes who oversees a multitude Now, bishops back then were just lead pastors who taught the people regularly. What Irenaeus was saying is don't listen to what everyone else is saying. Listen to the man who God has appointed to teach you, and he teaches you regularly. That doesn't mean believe everything he says, but trust your bishop. Trust your elders. Because there's so much chatter and so much stuff coming. And guess what? Even though we've become a part of this church and we love this body and we love each other, we've brought into this place traditions. We've brought into this place with us beliefs. We've brought into these things. Challenge everything, people. Challenge it. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, I, I plead with you. And it's not easy. It hurts. It stings. 
Over the years, I've learned, oh, this isn't right, but it feels so good. Get rid of it. Am I telling you what iron is? And am I saying you just trust everything that Pastor Phil says? No, you need to check everything I say. But if in doubt, talk to your church leaders. They are here and have been assigned by God to help you. No one's here to hurt you. No one's here to force you. No one's here to condemn. We love. The greatest thing that you could ever do is have someone challenge you in your beliefs if they don't quite line up. That's an act of love. That's not an attack. That's not hate. 